You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Can we open our Bibles, please, in the book of Joshua, chapter 9? a fascinating passage entitled The Gibeonite Deception. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country in the western foothills and along the entire coast of the great sea as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They came together to make war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. The men put worn and packed sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, he said to Joshua. But Joshua asked them, Who are you and where do you come from? They answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon king of Heshbon and Og king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it home in the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And their clothes and sandals are worn out with a very long journey. The men of Israel sampled their provisions but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty for peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out, and on the third day came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continue to let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise promised to them was kept. 
Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you, while actually you live near us? You're now under a curse. You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites and did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of God remains forever. I find American Christian magazines profoundly depressing. Not because of the editorial content, because usually that is usually that is of quite a high standard. But what gets me are the photographs, because the people look incredibly beautiful and perfect. They look as if they've run out of an orthodontist's catalogue. Their teeth are so straight and so white, and their hair is so marvelously coiffured. It is the image of absolute perfection, and everything looks almost as if it has been airbrushed. I thank God then for the realism of the Bible, because the Bible never deals with airbrushed perfection. There is not a single character apart from the Lord Jesus who is perfect in the pages of the Holy Scriptures. And so I am so thankful for all the foibles and all the messiness that I read in the Bible. And that's certainly what we find here in this particular chapter. It is a chapter that is full of flawed characters, indeed a whole cohort of flawed characters, the Gibeonites. And again, that fits in perfectly with the profile of the Bible. Think even of the big heroes of the Bible. We think of Noah. Now, he was a big man. He saved the world, arguably, through the ark. And yet we read that Noah got very, very drunk one night, and his sons were so embarrassed. And we've got that marvelous picture, remember, when they entered into the cave backwards, they were so ashamed of their father. And then we have David the psalmist. Well, don't even go there. And then, of course, we had Solomon, who was certainly wise, but he had his weaknesses along with Samson. And what about folk even in the New Testament, folk like like Mary, who thought that Jesus was mad? And Peter, who spoke with the very words of Satan himself, apparently. So what we have here are grubby stories about grubby people. That's the reality, not just of Holy Scripture, but that is the reality of our lives. No perfect people, no airbrushed perfection, but rather life in the state of Dundee is salty, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That is the human experience. So, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to, as it were, explain what's going on, because I think it requires a degree of explanation 
And then we're going to apply it in four areas using four distinct words. So what's going on here? Well, the big picture, first of all, you all know the story of the Bible. Israel is in bondage in Egypt. They are under the oppression of Pharaoh. God says, let my people go. Moses takes the people through the, the, the desert for 40 years, and then they enter the promised land. Moses has now died, and he's passed on to the new leader who's called Joshua. And this book is largely written to tell the tale of Joshua, the next phase of the spiritual journey. And so the deal was that they had to occupy the land of Canaan. Now, to do that, they had to defeat 31 separate kings over a seven-year period in a campaign that was a mixture of worship and a military campaign. So it was by no means simple. Indeed, it was quite complex as they had to take city after city. And so, of course, they took the city of Jericho. We know the story. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. It's a great song. Apart from two little errors, there was no battle (laughs) because they just walked around the city, didn't they? And also, Joshua didn't fight it. It was actually God who was the commander that day. Apart from that, it's a great song. And so they defeated the city of Jericho, which was really not so much a city, but a a, a fort, a, a garrison. And then they pulled down the city of Ai, and that's another story in itself. And so they're moving on. You've got Israel, by chapter 9, we have got Israel's unstoppable war machine. And then we find here that there's a situation in verse 1. The kings of the West. And they're the kings with all these marvelous names, aren't they? The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. The kings of the West realized we cannot stop the Israel war machine on our own. So they got together in a coalition, and they conspired together to defeat what is it there? Uh, Joshua and Israel, according to verse 2. That's what they did. And don't we see a picture here of a timeless phenomenon? It reminds me so much of Psalm 2. Almost parallel, isn't it? Kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and His anointed. We see it today that the battles of irreligion, the battle, the, 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 armies of secularism, the armies of atheism, the armies of materialism set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. There they are, they are raging against the people of God. And there's a particular mentality that brings in project fear into the church. And it says we're just in the end of defeat. Doom, doom, doom. We're all doomed. And there is this bunker mentality as the church is about to be implored and attacked by all these counter-God forces. And we are afraid, very afraid. Meanwhile in heaven, what does God do? He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord shall scorn them all. It's like a pea shooter against a tank. That's ultimately the fate of the anti-God forces. They will come to nothing. They have lost before they begin. 
And so the campaign in verse 1 and 2 of the kings of the West is utterly futile. They're not going to get anywhere. And so that's the response of God. He laughs and he points to his son Jesus and he says, I have set my anointed on the hill and Jesus shall reign. Wherever the sun rises and sun sets, our Lord will reign forever from the days of Joshua until today. However, the Gibeonites realized they had no chance. Notice how verse 3 begins, however, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. The Gibeonites were savvy, smart. They thought Jericho, fortified city, demolished after essentially a worship meeting. The city of Ai, completely and utterly destroyed. The Gibeonites said, we haven't got a chance. And so they had an option. The option was either to join in the coalition of the kings of the West and get trampled, or to cast themselves in with the people of God. But it was really complicated, and we'll come to that in a minute. The Gibeonites knew that they could not, by any stretch of the imagination, thwart the promises of God. The Gibeonites realized that it was futile to run away from God, that they had to cast their lot in with the people of God. They had the right idea, but they executed it in completely the wrong way. Indeed, in quite a bizarre way in resorting to this ruse. Now, I need to fill in the background. Deuteronomy 7 is clear, and the context is unpacked again in Deuteronomy 20. The deal was this. God said to the armies of Israel, you can make a treaty with people groups that are a long, long way away. But you cannot make a treaty with near neighbors. Because basically you can't get infected. Good walls make good neighbors. You cannot get infected with your neighbors, exterminate them. They're Canaanites. But you can make a treaty with folk who are a long, long way away. Now the problem was that Gibeon was only eight miles from Jerusalem. And so they resorted to this Oscar-winning ruse. Although it wasn't much of an Oscar-winning ruse, it was pretty rubbish acting at the end of the day. So what they did was they got their old clothes and they pretended that they had come from a long distance. And so they put on their cracked sandals, they used the old wineskins, and they did this bizarre thing with the bread to make it moldy and cold and dry, and they gave the impression that they'd come from a long, long way, that they'd marched from Wick when really they'd just come from Broughty Ferry. That's the situation here. They'd just lived down the road. And you could make a treaty with the wickers, but you could not make a treaty with the folk in the ferry because they were beyond the pale. And so they decided to resort to this ruse. And it all seemed so right. And a peace treaty was made. And then three days later, the people of Israel realized that they had been conned And the people of Israel demanded that the Jebusites be killed, annihilated, exterminated, to use a Doctor Who phrase. 
That's what they wanted. But the leaders said, no, we're going to let them go. And they made them into water carriers and hewers of wood for the people of Israel. So that's the story. It's a great story. It's an unusual story. It's kind of bizarre, isn't it? It's very strange. But I want to apply it in four ways, using four different words. The first application, and the word I'm going to use here is discernment. Discernment. Now, the ruse is not particularly sophisticated. I mean, we're not talking here about something that really was perfectly executed. But the people of Israel seem to lack discernment. After all, verse 9, look, they used the right sort of language. They answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt. They used the right language. They seemed to be very, very respectful. And they seemed to know all the terminology. They used covenantal language. They had the right expression about God. They seemed to speak very, very reverently. People often say the right things. I was reading the other day about a church in Glasgow that has gone from being thoroughly evangelical to being thoroughly post-evangelical, aka liberal. And one of the folk told me, yeah, we appointed a pastor, but he he used this this language. And I looked up the church website yesterday, and again, it's incredibly subtle. It says the origins of our church are in the evangelical movement, but it's moved on, you see. It's now post-evangelical. It's all very emerging. It's all very kind of God is a quintessential uh, child uh, uh, molester. God is really the, the angry God. We've moved on past the atonement. We've moved on past all these gender stereotypes. We, we've evolved. Discernment. There's going to be a new pound coin towards the end of the year, and it's kind of the end of an era. I'm old enough to remember pound notes. I'm even old enough when I went into a filling station once with my brother, and I remember him asking for a pound's worth of petrol. He got over three gallons back in the day. And I'm even old enough to remember farthings. You may see one or two in a museum. So now there's a new pound coin. We've moved on to pound coin too. And apparently 3% of all the pound coins in circulation are fakes. So they've come up with this new pound coin, which is made of two metals, and it's got, I forget how many sides. So that means that 3% of all pound coinage are fake, that you have probably handled fake money in the last month or two. And that's difficult to tell one from the other, but the way that you're exposed to fakes is that you're familiar with the real thing. And we find here that the people of Israel seem to be taken in by this because it looked right and their language is fine. But notice what it says there. It said there that they did not inquire of the Lord, verse 14. Isn't that the key? That's one 
arena where they seemed to lack discernment. They went on their initial impressions, but they didn't inquire of the Lord. Now, they could have. There was a mechanism. They had Eliezer, the high priest. They had this interesting phenomenon known as the human and the thuman by which God could communicate with them. There was a way in which they could communicate. There were people in their community who could communicate, who could intercede with God directly, but they didn't think and they didn't pray. But it seemed fine. All the doors were open. Are you struggling with guidance just now? And sometimes you say, well, it feels right, and all the doors are open. Now, we've got to watch about open doors, because open doors sometimes lead to elevator shafts where there's no lift. And you go through that open door, and boy, it's a long way down from the seventh floor. And so, don't just take the open door, inquire of the Lord. But again, verse 14, they did not do that. How often do we lack discernment? How often have we simply not handled the original? How often have we not sought God's face and exposed ourselves to reality? George Bush said, not the George Bush, but another George Bush or whose provenance I haven't got a clue But in 1881, this George Bush said, no proposed course of conduct can be so clear to a Christian as to excuse them from the duty of seeking direction from above. I'm not sure if discernment is a buzzword these days. I'm not sure how common it is in the currency of contemporary evangelicalism. But discernment ought to be part of what we are. It ought to be in the toolbox of our personal discipleship. It ought to be part of the the church discerning the will of God. Discernment. Is this, frankly, fake? Or is this of God? So, issue number one, word number one, is discernment. Word number two is integrity. So, we read in a passage that, what is it, verse 16, three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. And so, it's all over. Verse 18, so the Israelites set, 17, so the Israelites set out on the third day, and the, 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 verse 18, but the Israelites did not attack them. Presumably, the, neg- the negative implies that they were going to attack them. And so, you can see the situation there. The children of Israel, the ordinary people on the seats said, leaders, take them out, zap them, annihilate them, because they have conned us. They've resorted to this ruse. They ought to be killed. They are not part of the covenant people, and they have made a treaty under false pretenses. And so we have in verse 18 a pretty typical church meeting. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. Well, we thank God that the the church and the kingdom is not run as a democracy, don't we? And so, yes, the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, and the leaders said, no. We made an oath. 
Now the lawyers would have said, yeah, but the oath is not valid because it was made in wrong premises. The Gibeonites told us a pack of lies. They didn't disclose everything. They just live in Brotty Ferry, and we thought they came from Wick. And the leaders said, no. We have given them, see that in verse 19, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. You see, for them, irrespective of the rights and wrongs of the situation, the honor of God was at stake. It wasn't a question of their reputation. It was a question of God's reputation. And so their integrity was such that their own personal preferences and the clamor of the madding crowd was put to the side as the people said, get them. And the leaders said, no integrity. How can we apply this? Well, life is messy. And the older we get in life, the messier we see many of the issues of life. There are very, very few straight lines, and everything seems to be baptized in a degree of complexity. It is not straightforward. The oath was wrongly obtained, yes, But here we find that the leaders acknowledge that it's a difficult situation, it's far from perfect, but they must live within it no matter what the cost, because they have to honor God. We make mistakes, we are in difficult situations, but we must live obediently in the midst of our mistakes. We may have our preferences, we may have our difficulties, but the honor of God comes first. And we also see the culture of the leadership, don't we? And we see here how the culture of the leadership differs from the culture of the people. The culture of the people was, kick them out. The culture of the leadership was, bring them in. Joshua here is the quintessential wise leader. He sees a situation here, and he wants to draw the messed up, ruse-making Gibeonites into the covenant people of God. Integrity. What have we seen? We have seen discernment, number one. Number two, we see here integrity. And number three, my third word is choice. Choice. Now, this is one of those sermons where hopefully you're going to say, was he right in his interpretation or was he wrong? Hopefully there'll be a degree of discussion. But the third one is choice. Back to the people of Gibeon. They knew that they would have to meet God in judgment one day. On the battlefield that was the way. They knew that there was a certain judgment, that it was very, very near, and that unless they committed themselves to the people of God, they were going to come across on the wrong side. On the wrong side. They had seen what God had done to Jericho and Ai. They had seen that they were going to lose everything. And so, in the wrong way, however, they did make a choice. And their choice was to run 
into the people of God. Now, there were costs to that. It wasn't completely uh, an act of selfishness. They would incur the wrath of the kings of the West. They would have to break rank with the coalition. All their fellow Canaanites were saying, guys, we're going to do it this way. However, they said, no, we're going to do it this way. And so they defied the other kings and their countries to escape from the wrath to come. My application there, there is not by means of noticing the parallels, but by noticing the contrasts. They came to Yahweh telling lies. We don't need to come to Jesus telling lies. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad, and founded him my resting place, and there my heart was glad. And so the Gibeonites did it, did it the wrong way. We don't need to resort to a ruse. We don't need to get involved in this strange, bizarre scheme to endear ourselves to God. Some years ago, friends bought us, as a family, three nights in the Balmoral Hotel in Edinburgh. Dinner, bed, and breakfast. It was a very, very nice present. So at the time, we had three children, and uh, we drove down from Inverness, and we drove in front of the Balmoral Hotel, and there was this gentleman at the door. He was dressed like a rear admiral, but he was really a concierge. Now, I come from Paisley, we don't have many concierges where I come from. And the gentleman came to the car and says, Sir, I represent the valet parking, and I'm here to park your car. And my wife said, Step on it! And we zoomed away. Because we'd had three children, and our car was like a mobile skip. Like, it was like an archaeological site. There were McDonald's wrappers, there were Sweetie wrappers, and various other bits and pieces. And so she could not bear going to the valet parking when the car was such a mess. And so we went to a filling station, and we emptied the car, and we got the Hoover, and we did three hours valley job on it, not quite half an hour, and we cleaned it up, and then returned to the hotel. That's what so many of us are like with God. We try and clean up our lives before we give ourselves to God. We try to make moral adjustments to make ourselves acceptable. But the reality is that God knows the worst about us, and He says, come as you are. We don't need to resort to a ruse of either deceit or moralism. You see the contrast here? And so eventually they got it. Verse 24, they came uh, before Joshua and they admitted their sin. Your servants were clearly told, they said, we, we, we feared for our lives. They, 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 they spilled the beans. Do you know what the solemn thing here is? The kings of the West were exposed to exactly the same revelation as the Gibeonites. The kings of the West had also seen the destruction of Joshua and Ai. The kings of the West knew what God had done in past days. 
And that reminds me of 1 Corinthians 2.16, 2 Corinthians 2.16 even, where we read there that the same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. And so we see here, revelation has the effect on the kings of the West that makes them want to fight, whereas revelation has the effect on the Gibeonites that make them want to run to the covenant people of God. And so tonight in this building, tonight all over Scotland, tonight all over the world, the gospel is being proclaimed. And it's hardening the clay and softening the wax. So we've seen here discernment. We've seen integrity. We've seen choice. And the fourth and final word is grace. Grace. Now, it is all very grubby and all very tacky. There is complexity. But God is big enough to cope with that complexity. We have here the Gibeonites. Now, the Gibeonites were rank outsiders. The Gibeonites were not your natural candidates. They were part of the whole Canaan debauchery. The the, the Gibeonites... Were, were people who were outsiders. But that's one of the marvelous things about Joshua, how outsiders are taken in and insiders are put out. You get that especially even in the famous Jericho story that Rahab, the harlot, as A.V. says, is taken in, but Achan, the leader of the children of Israel, is put out. <laughs> and so Joshua, and indeed the whole of the Bible, is about the mission of God. The whole of the Bible is about how God reaches out to the outsider and takes them in. And so the Gibeonites are in. They're in by an unconventional means, but they're in. David, prove it. Verse 26, look at that phrase. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites. It's the only reference to Joshua saving anyone. Verse 27, what's their punishment? The irony is, in verse 27, their punishment is that they are given daily access to the temple as cutters of wood and hewers uh, of, of and taking water, waters, water and carriers of water. Hewers of wood, carriers of water. Doesn't that remind us of a verse in the Psalms? Yes, you got it. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in my father's house and dwell in tents of sin. In chapter 10, God stops the sun to protect who? The Gibeonites. In 2 Samuel 21, God brought a famine to Israel to force them to honor who? The Gibeonites. The ark, where was it stationed for a period of time? In Gibeon. First Kings 3, King Solomon sought wisdom at Gibeon. First Chronicles 12.4, one of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite. After this, there is not a single negative reference to the Gibeonites. They seem to be devoted servants of the temple and of Yahweh. And so we see here that the irony is that the duplicitous outsiders who came in in this unconventional way became beacons of light within the community of the covenant people of God. That's how God works. 
He takes the outsiders and he brings them in. What an amazing transformation. Israel's bondmen became God's free men. Yes, they are punished. Clearly they're punished, but there's mitigation here. Let me conclude. I think what we have here is a splendid display of the amazing grace of God. Matthew Henry is a little bit out of favor with bright young preachers. They wouldn't be seen dead quoting Matthew Henry. It's a bit like kipper ties and flared trousers in preaching today. But I kind of like Matthew Henry. In fact, I love Matthew Henry, especially in Old Testament narrative. Matthew Henry, looking at this passage, says this. Let us imitate these Gibeonites and let us make our peace with God in the rags of humiliation, godly sorrow and mortification, so that our iniquity will not be our ruin. Let us be servants to Jesus, our blessed Joshua, and make league with him and the Israel of God, and we shall live. Jesus is the ultimate Joshua, of course. And the gospel story is the ultimate story of the outsider brought in. I wonder, how do we finally apply this? Well, isn't it true that we are either in here a mission field or a missionary? If you're an outsider, come in, come in. If you're part of the covenant people of God, reach out to the Gibeonites and bring them in that they would make a league with God. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for who you are. We bless you for the power of the gospel, even there in the book of Joshua. We ask, Lord, that you would meet us now. Forgive our sins. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.